If you have your Bible, if you will open it to uh, Luke chapter number 19 this evening. Luke chapter 19. I was uh, just thinking a while ago when uh, I met with Aaron concerning preparation for baptism, I was um, thinking in terms of uh, uh, folks who, uh, as in the case with the men who built the baptistry, uh, I still am somewhat marveled by that, uh, made out of concrete back there. And it's, uh, if you were to crawl under it, which you can, uh, I know John and Rod have been under there, and Barry has been under there. Uh, Andrew went under there to turn the valve on for me one time. So a few people have been under and you can crawl all the way under the baptistry. My thoughts have always been, every time I go into it, and don't let this scare your ear, what's holding this thing up? <laughs> if you can crawl under it, what's holding this thing up? Now remind yourself, it's got 496 gallon of water. I know that because Mr. Hayes measured every inch of it and came back and told me, here's how much water's in the thing, you know. And then the fact of the matter is, every time I think about that, I think of Brother Hayes and the work he did to get underneath there and put the water heater. We have a water heater underneath this thing. That's why it's so hot on the platform when we baptize. The choir will sweat while we're up here with the baptism wall because I told Aaron it'll be hot and it's warm. I've already shut off the circulating pump and a heater and it's still warm water. It's better than a warm shower anywhere. But the fact is, I marvel at the folks who've helped us get these things so we can utilize them. And um, I'm grateful for that. And I appreciate all the folks who put the business in to work together to get it done. And uh, we, you remember some of you? Some of you do remember, I'm sure. Uh, we didn't have the we didn't have a water heater underneath that thing. And so, uh, uh, Mrs. Sanders, your husband brought me a uh, a trough water heater you know where farmers stick this thing down in the in the water and where the water won't freeze so they can water their livestock he brought me one of those in here and i remember sticking it over the side of that thing and i thought this ain't never going to work i mean this is just a small thing you know and lo and behold when we took that thing out of there and got ready to baptize it was pretty warm it worked out very well but now we have a Class A system. I mean, we have the thing ready to go. So no excuse not to follow the Lord and believers' baptism anymore, a fear of cold water. Uh, we don't have any right now, and for that I'm grateful. This evening in uh, Luke chapter 19, a passage that we've been uh, on for a while, uh, the Bible is, is like this. Um, it's one of those things when reading the Scripture, there's always something that you can see or somebody else can see in it as you may have read it ten times and then all of a sudden you'll see something that just sort of jumps off the page at you and and tells you that this is important and uh, and don't miss it. This is one of those ten verses in the Bible from chapter 19 of Luke, verse 1 through 10, of a singular conversion. But uh, for Luke to incorporate it into his gospel is to tell us that there's several things about it that we ought to take close look at. So let's just begin with, again, reading it so you'll be familiar with what the Bible says. Verse 1, chapter 19, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. I've said this before from this pulpit. I don't know that I've said it since we began this, but Jericho was called a city of the palms, the city of the palms. Uh, in some sense of the word, it was looked at as a resort area. 
and the only time people went there was to sort of quit doing everything else. You know, it was a, it was not a thriving port city or anything like that. It was a resort city. And so consequently, it's interesting that the Lord Jesus never stayed there. He always entered and left. And he does the same here, verse 1. In verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was a chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was of little stature. And he ran before, climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, Make haste, come down, today, for today I must abide at thy house. He made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Verse 9, Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That uh, those ten verses, and there's a lot of things in the next uh, few weeks we'll get to uh, and attend to in the text. But uh, this evening I mentioned about uh, what I believe is a, a real likelihood of how it came about that Zacchaeus, who is a publican, wanted to see Jesus. Um, you always ask yourself, well, he was a Jew, and oh, by the way, uh, verse number um, uh, verse number nine. Uh, for as much he also is a son of Abraham. In that sense, he didn't become a son of Abraham until he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not the verse you'd point to in this text to say, uh, this man is a Jew. Uh, that's not what you'd look at. What you'd look at is his name. His name is a common name among Jewish people, Zacchaeus was. We don't hear about any of the others, but the fact is, looking in dictionaries and whatever, uh, there was a good number of those guys around. So the fact is, it's a Jewish name, and he's a Jewish fella, and the consequence of this is that the question is, how did he hear? Where was he, and how did it come about that he got it? I am not saying that what I'm about to tell you is absolute, but I do believe the Bible points to it as a real likelihood. And I'll show you. Look, if you would, uh, and, and another reason I believe is because in the front end of the book of Luke, you have this. Look, if you would, at Luke chapter 5. You're in chapter 19. Look back to chapter 5. And I say this is one of the reasons when we were in uh, Bible class in uh, school, uh, we had, if you were going to take a text out of a, um, one of the, let's say, one of the Gospels, um, and you had to present your presentation to the class as we did in uh, hermeneutics and homiletics and so forth. Um, the fact of the matter is, our teacher, who I, I certainly loved in the Lord, he was a great Bible teacher, Dr. Bruce Lackey, and uh, I have material in my file to this day that Dr. Lackey taught, and I invited him to come to our church when I pastored elsewhere, and uh, he's a great Bible teacher, a great Bible preacher, a gracious man, played the uh, piano beautifully. Uh, and died very young. So the fact of the matter is, uh, I've always appreciated his ministry, but one of the requirements for his Bible study class was if you took a text, let's say we took the text out of, of Luke chapter 19, as we have done, he would say to you, for you to really understand it, you have to read all the 18 chapters prior. And you'd say, excuse me, I'm just talking about this text. And he'd say, but there's a broad context, and you need to get it all in. 
Well, when you do that, you come back to chapter number 5 and look down to verse number 27. 527 of Luke, it says, And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi. Now, we have a publican in 19th chapter. His name is Zacchaeus. And here we have a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said, and that simply means he's sitting in a location where there's probably a crossroads or something where a lot of people would travel. And uh, this publican is making it easy on himself. He's not going necessarily door to door. He's setting up camp and waiting for people to come to him and then requiring of them to pay their taxes. So this is where we are. And he said, um, in this case, he was sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, and the he here is the Lord Jesus, he comes along and says to Levi, follow me, verse 28, and he, Levi, left all, rose up, and followed him, Jesus, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Interesting thing, this, because in... um, Not only the Lord sees this publican here in verse number 27 and saw the publican named Levi, but also indicating that uh, he said to this publican, follow me. And the Bible indicates that he left all and he rose up. There's a contrast. What's a contrast between him rising up and, and Zacchaeus? He came down. Levi rises up, Zacchaeus comes down. Interesting contrast, but a simple one. Whether it has anything to do with it, there's some believe that it did. That there was this point, it was a connection, not only in the context of, uh, of somebody who was going to lay aside everything he was doing, but here's somebody who committed his life on the spot. Didn't, didn't budge, I mean, just bingo. Uh, he rises up as if to leave it all and lay it aside, and where are we going? What are we going to be doing? But only because Christ spoke, he's on board, he's following. So there seems to be some difference because when Zacchaeus came down, there was a discussion and things were seemingly talked about and so forth. So there's a difference in the two of those. However, in verse number 28, it it does say, and it's important to note, that in 28, Levi made him a great feast in, in his own house. Excuse me, that, yes, 29. Verse 28, he left all, rose up, and he followed him. It's important to note that. He lifted all. Here's a guy who uh, doesn't say he was a rich publican, but he was a publican who took money from other people to pay their taxes. And like Zacchaeus, he had the ability, he had a, an unethical right to gouge them for all he could get out of them. And um, he could have been very well off. And my guess is it was looked upon as a very lucrative career and a very lucrative franchise. But the fact of the matter is, this verse of Scripture says when the Lord spoke to him, he just laid it all aside. He walked away from it. That takes something. That's not easy. So the fact is, that's a statement made. But then in uh, in uh, verse number 29, interesting that Levi makes a great feast, and it says there was a great company of publicans and uh, Obviously, they were coming to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes this feast after he's following Christ. He's left everything. He's laid everything aside. He's following the Lord Jesus. He then makes a feast, and uh, and notice he makes a great feast in his own house. 
And he goes to this trouble and invites these, uh, evidently in great company of publicans and others, sat down with them. And the indication is that there was more than just Levi here, and probably more than just Levi's family, if he had one, but it's included and concurred that it was the Lord Jesus Christ among them. A great company of publicans and Jesus Christ is present, my thinking is, based on uh, verse number um, verse 32 of the same text. You're in chapter 5, and you just read verse 29. Skip down to verse 32. Jesus speaks and says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My guess is, at that feast, the Lord Jesus cried up and gave the gospel as he would give it. And that means for them to believe on him just like we spoke about in John chapter 12 this morning, where he says to these people, I'm here for a little while, and I'm light while I'm here, and if you believe on me, you can become the children of light. But I'm only here for a while, and you've got to act quickly. As I said, John chapter 12 is the last open public invitation for anybody to turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have no doubt that at this feast, the Lord Jesus Christ invited by Levi and uh, invited the publicans who were known in general public, people, publican, uh, as publicans are, as sinners. I'm confident the Lord Jesus Christ shared the gospel. Now, interestingly enough, this is Luke's perception. The good thing to do is that Levi wrote a book of the Bible, and his book is Matthew. So look over to Matthew, and look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, look down to verse number 9. Matthew 9 and verse 9. This is, uh, this is Matthew's account of the same event. Uh, Matthew is Levi. The Bible says in chapter 9, verse 9, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he rose up and followed him. It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And then in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And verse 12, but when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that have whole or that are be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And verse 13, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, that's the same event, but it's Matthew's perception. There's some things that are different between the two, and I think these are, uh, I think these put a real badge of nobility on Matthew for the differences that he left out. First off, I'd call your attention to the fact that uh, he does not mention, Matthew does not mention that he left everything. He wasn't a bragger. He wasn't the kind of guy that says, by the way, I gave everything up so I could follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say that. He didn't say, this is going to cost me because this is a lucrative franchise, and a lucrative business, and I, and I gave it all up so I could follow Jesus Christ. Never said that. In fact, he doesn't even breathe it. He doesn't even allude to it. He doesn't suggest it. Here, uh, may I say to you that uh, I think Matthew was a person who had deep-seated sense of security, and he didn't need anybody endorsing him. Now let me ask you a question. 
Are you more secure in your faith as people tell something about you or say something about you to encourage you in your walk with the Lord? Or are you self-secure based on what the Bible has taught you? Where does your security as a believer come from? First off, we say it around the New Life Baptist Church, and we say this, uh, I think, rather frequently to people. We would say this, nobody in this ministry would ever tell you that you're saved. That's not ours to do. We can tell you what the Bible says, and we can say to you, this is what the Bible says, and this is what you should do to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But nobody in the ministry here, and I speak as a pastor of this flock, should ever look at anybody and say, you are saved. Nobody knows that. There's a God in heaven who knows who is and who is not. And it's not my my job, it's not your job to look at people and say, uh, based on what you've done, I, you're saved. You're saved. Now you go out and you're saved. So when we deal with people, we don't, we don't say to them, you're saved. We say to them, having done what the Lord Jesus Christ said, are you confident? Are you confident that Christ has come into your life and saved you? So in Matthew's case, he's one of those people who does not look around and needs somebody's endorsement to give him certainty of his salvation, and neither should you. Your certainty should come on the basis of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to affirm in you that you do know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you look to other people and the work you do or the service you render or the attitudes you show and whatever, and they say, well, he's got to be saved, and they are the ones who keep you sort of nudged along, and you have somehow become like a drug dependent upon them telling you that, you, you stand on very shaky ground. Um, people's feelings and emotions and uh, opinions vacillate so frequently, so uh, indiscriminately. It's such a subjective kind of thing. You don't want to stake anything of your spirituality on those kinds of issues. They need to rest and rest firmly only on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's testifying to your faith. So consequently, in Matthew's case, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't mention it because to him, um, he doesn't need anybody commending him. He doesn't need anybody patting him on the back about it. Uh, it was just something he obviously did, and he did it out of a, a heartfelt response to the Lord Jesus Christ inviting him to follow, and uh, he doesn't take it any further. Notice something else in the Matthew passage. Matthew does not uh, tell us that it was he who made a great feast. You see, in um, verse 10, it say, or verse 11 says, when uh, uh, the Pharisees saw it, they had heard. Um, in verse 10, excuse me, and it came to pass that Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him with his disciples. What house? Matthew doesn't even tell you his address. He doesn't say, this is my house. I did this. I did it in my house. And we took the food out of my cupboard and gave it to him. I took the food out of my refrigerator and gave it to him. I set up a great feast and we fed this guy's. He didn't say that. He doesn't even mention whose house it is. He just said there was a feast and a lot of people showed up and there was many publicans and sinners who came there and there were some Pharisees who came along and began to con complain and criticize and, and have their opinion about this not being right and wanting to know who this master was that would sit with a bunch of sinners and a bunch of publicans. And uh, Matthew doesn't say a word about it. It was my house, it was my food, and it was my invitation. Not a word. Not a word. He didn't brag about a thing. You have to watch in the Christian life that you catch yourself bragging about something. 
if, if, for instance, let me show you an illustration. If we have people praying for a certain thing, and God, by his own pleasure, decides to answer those prayers and accomplish what we've been asking for, it would be easy for you, let's say, if you happen to meet the person of which this prayer request was centered on, and you would say to them, I have been praying for you every day. Okay, If you take pride in that, if you take some kind of uh, a verification of a, a, what we might say, uh, my prayers really was the one that got you over the, over the wall, you know. If you in any sense take from that, the glory that should be given God and the expectations or expressions that a lot of us prayed for this need and you steal a little of it, nobody else may know, but the Lord will know. So don't ever take anything that's not yours. And even if you prayed for somebody, it's fine to say, I've been praying for you, and I'm glad to hear you're better. But don't snatch from it snippets of glory. Give God the glory and let them know you were glad to do the praying. But don't let them think for a second that you were the main spring in this thing working. Because that's a function that God's Spirit works and uses, and it's not for us to take credit for it. In fact, any, when you lead someone to faith in Christ, I said this to one of the members of our fellowship a few weeks ago, when you lead someone to faith in Christ, don't notch your Bible. Now, you've heard me say that in the pulpit, but I said it privately. I said, don't knock your Bible about this. You ought to give God the glory and leave it with Him to give you the reward as it pleases Him. But don't knock your Bible. In this case, Matthew is, uh, is uh, dead to self. He just he doesn't want any glory. He doesn't want anybody pointing to him, saying what a great guy he is. He doesn't want any of that thing. And notice something else. That Matthew... Uh, does not uh, uh, not only does he tell us not tell us that it was he who made the great feast and invited these people, and not only was it that he did not tell us uh, that the feast was in his own house. Uh, fact of the matter is, he does not in any way, shape, form, or fashion take anything of credit for any aspect of what the Lord Jesus Christ has called him and made him and asked him to follow him for. He doesn't say, I was a good person, or I, was a, I, was, I showed skills that he needed in the ministry, and so he called me. He doesn't indicate any part of that. So it's a case where you have a man who really is a good model for all of us to follow, in that he quite obviously was dead to self. Now, with that said, I believe back to chapter 19 of uh, Luke, chapter 19 of Luke, and verse number 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans. And he was rich, verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was, could not for the press, because he was of little stature. Now, it's possible, and I think highly probable, that since Zacchaeus was the chief among the publicans, I believe that he was invited. And uh, I believe that... Um, I believe that Matthew made an invitation to him, as he obviously did to all these other publicans. It's possible he did not go. It's possible 
that he was curious because this Jesus he knew was going to be at this feast that he was invited to by Matthew, and he did not get to meet him. He did not get to see him. He does not he doesn't know anything about him. And our text says that he wanted to see, sought to see Jesus, verse 3, who he was. It implies that he had some perception about him or have some connection to him or some in, you know, intervention with him, and now he wants to see him. So I believe that he uh, knew about him because he was invited to get to meet him at the great feast that Levi or Matthew was to set up. It's possible that Zacchaeus had heard about that and, uh, and uh, he'd heard about especially about Matthew's abrupt leading, leaving about this receipt of custom position, this taxation thing that the publicans did, that he'd heard about Levi. And he could have said to himself, possibility, he could have said, I want to meet the guy that caused a fellow publican to give up everything that he'd worked for. I want to see this guy. What in the world, what kind of guy is this? that would have such an impact on one of my fellow publicans that he would have given up every single thing about his work to just to see this guy. I believe there's something in that because of the way the text is written in chapter 19, and I believe that it's possible that Zacchaeus, having heard about that abrupt leaving of uh, Matthew, of the franchise and the business and so forth that Matthew had done, Zacchaeus knew uh, this was a big deal, and there was something unbelievable about it, and um, especially you think about it. You just think about it. Jesus Christ was homeless. Homeless. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had no constant income. I mean, he was about as uh, likely a candidate for somebody to follow as a goat would be walking through Franklin and encouraging people to follow him. I mean, there's this absolutely impossible to reason why a man with a good, lucrative franchise is just going to get up and follow a guy who has nowhere to go at night. He has no bed to sleep in. He has no food to eat. He has none of the things that were the amenities of life which we have. And Matthew gets up and walks away from this lucrative business to follow a homeless guy. Give me a break. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's, uh, that's far out there in left field. And I believe Zacchaeus said, this is so far out there, I want to meet the man who said to him, follow me, and to meet the man that Matthew laid it all down to go follow. I believe that's the whole point of it. That's why I believe all your commentaries talk about it, curiosity. Uh, I, I don't care what it is, curiosity or some other motivation, any of those things that God can use and often does use to bring people to himself. There are some of the great conversions of the past, of meaning human beings in a lifetime you and I might have, and even beyond that, uh, who curiously walked into services. Uh, they were under great duress and challenges of their life, and they walked down the street at night. Uh, one of those was in Chicago. I can't remember right now the man who uh, who was, but he was under great stress and duress in his own personal life and his family's life. And he was walking the streets of Chicago and walked by Pacific Garden Mission. And while he walked by there, he heard them singing. He heard them singing a song. Uh, right off the top of my head, I don't remember even the song they sang. But it stopped, and he listened for a moment. And there was just something inside of him, and he admits it was curiosity. 
He wanted to go hear what this was all they were singing about. And he walks in, sits down in the back of the, the chapel where they were singing, and he sat there, and he sat there, and then a man got up. And a man got up and told his story about how he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right there in the mission. And as he, uh, this man began to unfold his story, this guy began to relate to it. And he could understand uh, all that this guy was saying because this is the path he had taken. And so as he listened to the testimony, they came to the end of the service and they gave an invitation song. This guy gets up and walks down the aisle. And one of the workers there, one of the men who were administrators of the thing, took him to a room, side, side room, and privately, and sat down with him and just asked him a few questions and began to uh, inquire about him coming into the service. Where'd you come from? What were you out doing? And so forth. And he told them that story. And that man came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that man went on to pastor a church in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. Simple salvation experience. But what got him inside the building was the curiosity of a song he heard that he was not familiar with and a group of men singing it. And he wanted to go and see what it was all about. And for a few years back, until then, the Lord called him home, he had pastored that church and took people in his church over there to minister to the men in that mission. Now look, I, I, God can use any kind of motivation and in Zacchaeus' case, if it was curiosity, I believe the curiosity was blossomed and bloomed out of what he heard about Matthew and recognizing that Matthew was a publican just like he was a publican. He was a man who took money from the Jews to pay the taxes to the Romans, and he understood the prospect and the franchise benefits of this whole thing. And if this guy gave that up to follow this homeless guy, there must be something to this guy. I want to go see him. I believe that's the curiosity that brought him to this place and this point in this story. It's no wonder Zacchaeus wanted to see that person, to see what he was like and what impact that he also might have on his life. But remember that uh, publicans uh, were so hated, and I mean, uh, I mean really hated, not just a little hated, a lot hated. Uh, calling them sinners almost. Uh, uh, it was a delight of the Jewish people to call them sinners. And uh, him knowing that he was hated, um, I think was uh, um, uh, what I want to say. I don't think there's any amount of money that would get some people to do a service for which they did. They would be hated. I don't know many people who would do that. I, I think there has to be a certain line of greed in you to get you to do a job that you know if you do this, they're going to hate you. I mean, they'll hate you so badly. Everywhere you go, they may going to call you a sinner, and they're going to make all you other names, and they may even try to stone you. And uh, I think it's um, um, uh, so bad that it would... Um, I think most people just couldn't handle it. Now, here's the deal. Remember that uh, the publicans, uh, let's say, uh, as being Jewish, the synagogue was the central operation of their worship in, uh, in that time. So the consequence of that is that a, a publican could not enter the temple or the, or the synagogue. No publican could go inside the synagogue. On top of that, uh, no publican could send his money to support the synagogue. In the Jewish community, it's... Uh, 
uh, one of those kind of things where that's just a common thing. They have a uh, community chest. It's still due to this day. That Jewish people in their community put money into it to take care of other Jewish people who may have a hard time, have a problem or a challenge. And the consequence is the synagogue would not accept the publican's money. I mean, he couldn't get it in. He couldn't sneak it in. Uh, it was always a question of whose this money came from. Was it a gift from another friend? Who did this come from? And if they indicated it was a publican, then it was refused. They wouldn't even accept it no matter how hard up they were. There was no uh, opportunity for the publican to get his money put into the offering at the synagogue. Publicans would um, probably agree with a man who said this, quote, The worst thing about money is that it so often will cost you so much. That's probably true with the publican. It cost him a relationship with the synagogue, which for a Jewish person was really bad. I mean, that was a, a very bad thing is to not have a relationship to the local synagogue. And what does it cost you and me? Sometimes people uh, say to us that uh, uh, it costs a lot to be a Christian. My point is it costs a lot not to be a Christian. And it gets worse the further down the road you go. And now... Here you have a well-known Jew who was coming through in Zacchaeus' area, and his curiosity was such that uh, uh, he has no idea how his life is about to be changed when uh, this man passes by and the effect that it will have on his own money and his own riches. By the way, I ran across, a <clears throat> I ran across a, um, an article, and in this article uh, it um, had what I called a possible invitation that could have been sent by uh, Matthew to Zacchaeus. Here's what it said. Friend beloved, a marvelous thing has happened to me since I I last wrote you. Jesus of Nazareth has entered into my life, transformed it, and he's a great preacher, a doer of wonderful works. I believe him to be the long-looked-for Messiah, the very Son of God. He has saved me from my sins. I have come um, I consecrated my life to him a few days ago. He left Capernaum and is now journeying along the caravan route to Caesarea, uh, Philippi to Jerusalem. On the way, he must pass through Jericho. I beseech you, by no means fail to see or hear him. My hope is that he may do for you what he has so graciously done for me. Now, that's not Bible. That's a possibility of what was written the same way I ask you to write letters and let tell folk what God, what God's done in your life. This doesn't come from the Scriptures. This is a possibility of what could have been written on the part of Matthew to get Zacchaeus at least potentially curious enough to go down and see Jesus Christ. I contend that something got him there more than just hearing that there's some guy walking by. He had to have heard something about Jesus Christ. Nobody goes and climbs up in a tree to look out over the crowd to see somebody that is absolutely of no use or no interest to them. Something had triggered something deep enough in Zacchaeus that he wanted to see them. And in that verse 19, verse 3, it says, He sought to see Jesus who he was, could not for the press because he was of little statue. Uh, That tells us there were a lot of people wanting to see the Lord Jesus Christ also for the press, for the group of people present. And it must have been enough where he couldn't get up where he could see over them. And they must have lined the streets for that to happen. In fact, the Greek word here, oiklos, is a a word that means typically in the Scriptures a disorganized throng born along. 
uh, means it's like a, a mob of people that just sort of starts moving. And, uh, and evidently they were in the streets and out of the streets and the sides of the streets. They were everywhere. They were just a throng of people following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the word in the Greek for the word press. And uh, it reminds me of something. And let me take you back. This is in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Look back to Matthew chapter 9, but not uh, at... Matthew's story about him following the Lord. Look at chapter 9, but over to verse number uh, 36, Matthew 9:36. What happened there with this throng of people reminds me of this in Matthew 9:36, but when he saw the multitude, this is talking about the Lord Jesus, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith the Lord unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Verse 38, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. In this passage of Scripture, that just reminds me that the Lord Jesus Christ was forever concerned about people. When he saw this multitude, he was moved with compassion for them. And um, I say to you that... Uh, this is one of those things that um, I need more of, and I suspect you probably do, is we need more compassion for people recognizing if they do not know Christ as Savior, they're just like this group in Matthew chapter 9. They are like sheep without a shepherd, and that means they just wander around. They've gone astray, and they're going in every direction. They're like a, a herd of cattle. They're, they just go everywhere. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants to give them direction for the life. But it's not all. Look back to Luke chapter number 19. The same chapter we have the story of Zacchaeus. Look to the latter part of the chapter 19. Look at verse 41. In Luke chapter 19 verse 41 it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. He wept over it. The Bible says in verse 42, saying, if thou hast known even thou, at least at this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Verse 43, For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about you, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground that thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because... Because, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And it's an interesting uh, thing that um, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I assure you, did not weep over the city for the beautiful architecture. You know, you can drive into Columbus and see some uh, beautiful architectural work, and it's a good city of good architecture. But that's not what caused the Lord Jesus Christ to weep over the city. Obviously, it's just like it was with the mob in Matthew chapter 9 when he saw these people and he had compassion on them. There was something beneath them, not just seeing a bunch of people. What is it about these people? I think there are four things. One, I believe he saw them as we should think of them and see them as they are born sinners. I think that we need to get back to a very fundamental thing about everybody you see and everybody you meet until proven otherwise is a sinner. And you and I are obviously are not judges, and we're not to say and condemn them. We're simply to take what the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Everybody was born a sinner. 
But the thing about it is, if you're not careful, you'll skip over that. You won't see people in general as being lost. Because if they happen to have a sense of niceness and kindness and graciousness to you, it's easy to miss the simple fundamental point. These people were born sinners. Being nice has nothing to do with it except on the other side of salvation when you are to be nice only because by virtue the Holy Spirit produces a kind of niceness in you. They're not born nice. Nobody is. But people, some people, some pagans are pretty nice folks. But they're still lost. And I believe when the Lord Jesus Christ saw them better than we, I think he saw people who were born sinners and he recognized that. Second thing, I think also they... They, and he knew well, they could not save themselves. They were helpless, lost people. And by the way, every person you know that's lost is helpless to save themselves. Nothing they're going to do is going to change that. Number three, they had, uh, uh, I call it an appointment with death. And, um, and that would end everything, all opportunities, of being born again and being given eternal life by the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe when he looked at the city of Jerusalem, that's what he saw. He saw people that are sinners, people who could not save themselves, and thirdly, he saw people who were going to die, and they needed to know Christ before they do. This, I think, is something that strikes us and should strike all of us seriously. If you know someone who's dying, the best thing you can do for them is to share the gospel, pure and simple. And by the way, uh, I was talking at lunch to our family, and I mentioned this. The Daily Journal, of course, lists all the names of the people who die. Uh, that is, and they're not necessarily just here in Johnson County, but the most of them are, most of them. But one day, and I don't know what day of the week it was this last week, but there were 15 people who died, 15 names. And if you get the Daily Journal, they're on the right-hand side at the bottom of the page in the left-hand corner, the whole list. It gives their names, and it gives their ages. Then you can turn over to the obituary page and you can read information about them. And when you get over there, you look at them and so forth. So what I did, I took out a, a yellow piece of paper. I wrote down not the names. I wrote down the age of each of these people, all 15 of them. And as I recorded that, I took the ages and I added them up. And when I added them all up, I divided it by 15. And the average age of that group of people was 75.3. Now, the thing about that is, that wouldn't have been nearly that high, except there were two people in there. One was 100 years old, and one was 90-something years old. The rest of these folks were in the 70s, and many of them, majority of them, were in the 60-something. Now, the thing about that is, I, I, I just thought, well, that's one thing. I checked it another day, not 15 people died that, way, that day, or not recorded that day, and this time, the number come up much lower, 67 point something, because they had people in their 50s who had died. Now, the thing about it is there's just no guarantee how long people are going to live. Not your relatives, not my relatives, not your friends, not my friends, not your neighbors, not my neighbors, or not us. We don't have any guarantee about that. And so the thing about it is, is twofold. One, if the people that you're concerned about and you're not certain of their salvation, the best thing you can do, the kindest thing in the world you could do is to share the gospel with them and take the risk of sharing it and even bring an offense about it. On the other side of the coin, you may not live long enough to get to do it if you don't do it now. 
What we do, we need to do now because we don't have a guarantee of another day. And if these people mean anything to us, if we have any concern for them whatsoever, the best thing you can do for them is either one of two things. One is go directly to them and simply say to them, I have a burden to share the gospel with you. Now, you can reject it. You can spit on me. You can do whatever you want to do. But I feel compelled to tell you this before you die and before I die. And you can do with it whatever whatever you want to. You can you can get angry, mad, bitter. You can do whatever you want to do. But my part in it is to tell you what the Bible says concerning being saved and going to heaven when you die and living this life on earth to the glory of God. Here goes. And just share it with them. And if you have to take one of the tracks and share it with them, or if you have to take one of the ultimate questions that's here in the front and take things out of that, whatever you have to do, it's worth the effort to get somebody to hear the gospel who may have heard it for the very first time. And it may be the very last time you get to share it. So in the case without these uh, people, I believe that the Lord wept over the city because it was that serious. It's also important to note that even in this text that he knew this is the fourth thing. Not only they're sinners and not only they're unable to save themselves and uh, not only that they had... Uh, been a, a group of people who were appointed to die, but the fourth thing is he knew they had missed a golden opportunity. I mean, he uh, makes it very clear in the text that um, these folks um, knew not the time of their visitation. And he was saying to them that this destruction and all this is going to take place, which is a futuristic kind of event for them, uh, he says to them, uh, you missed a golden opportunity. And I say to you, as I said this morning, uh, God is patient and extremely patient. But even God's patience stops one day. And when it stops, uh, these people will not have the opportunities that they have now. When that place is, we don't know. We have no idea. But you shouldn't gamble with something that is so eternally serious and that's what would be incorporated into this. For, for the people to believe on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Messiah of Israel, this passage of Scripture, he says to them, it would have meant peace for you. Uh, in other words, uh, since you've not trusted me as your Messiah, you're not going to know peace. And they didn't trust him because they didn't think he was the source of peace. They never believed that about him as the Messiah. But because they would not see him as in that condition or that position, now they could not. And that's the other side of the coin. You know, what um, people on, on the other side of receiving a witness wouldn't do, the day will come when they could not do. They can't believe on him. I've only been in the presence of one person who said that to me and who I understand died without ever having any other meeting with anybody to share the gospel with him. It happened years and years ago, and with this I close. Uh, in Ohio, there was a man who another member of our church asked me to go see and to visit with, and I went to his home. And the first time I went there, I was not able to catch him. His wife was present, but he was not home. And so I told her I'd come back, ask her when it would be the best time. She told me, and in that time frame, I went back to see him. I went to see this guy. He had never been in our church there. He had um, uh, been a friend of a man in the church who actually had worked with him, been a, been a friend on a, as a co-worker. And uh, the consequence was this man was very... A very wicked man, frankly, um, and he was um, he um, 
in one way he was killing himself with his alcoholism and so forth, so he was, he was really uh, doing a masterful job of ruining his life. One evening when I got to see the man, uh, he was very sober, he was very straightforward, his wife told him I was going to be coming, and he was very straight up with me. We sat down in his living room, his wife wisely dismissed herself, went to the other room, and it was just he and I sitting in his living room, and I began to tell him, and told him who. A man in our church asked me to come and say, see you, and he said, oh, really? And he said, did he want me to get in your church? And I said, no, he didn't want you to get in my church. And, and I said, you couldn't get in my church. And he said, oh, I couldn't. And he said, call it a drink. And I said, well, no, that's not the problem. He said, wait a minute. You know, you're saying I couldn't get in your church, and it's not because I'm drinking? I said, yeah, that's not going to keep you out of my church. He said, what keep me out of your church? I said, you have to be born again. And if you get born again, I won't have to worry about you drinking. And he said, Really? And I said, really? And I said, the deal is simple. Let me share the gospel with you. I started by telling him about myself, telling him how I came to faith in Christ. And then I started transferring that to what the Bible says and the verses and using them and so forth. About mm, three-quarters of the way through, he put his hand out, and we were sitting across from each other. He reaches out, put his hand on my knee. He said, Reverend, you might as well stop right there. I can't believe I said, no, it's not you can't, it's that you won't. He said, whatever it is, I have absolutely no interest in what you're talking about. I know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to kill myself drinking. I know all that. And I even believe to a point, and he said, I know you'll argue with me. I even believe to a point what you preachers preach, that there is this bad place of burning hell or whatever you call it. And I'm going to go there. I'll give you that. But he said, I don't want to believe. I said, well, at least you're admitting it's a thing you want to and don't want to. It's not a matter you can't. He said, I guess you're right. I have no heart for this. Zero. And he said, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not mad at my friend for inviting you to come. And, and he said, you're always welcome. He said, in fact, you, every time you come, you can tell me everything you've told me this time. You can repeat this as often as you like if it will make you feel better. But he said, I honestly have no interest in anything you're talking about. And I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I said, well, that's today. There's another day. And I'll see if I can't come back. I left him. I talked to the man of our church who invited me to go see him. I told him what he said. He said, that's exactly what he told me when I went by to visit with him. I said, how long ago was that? He said, three years ago. I said, in three years, he's not moved a bit. He said, not an inch. So I left it with our friend of this man in our church, and I said to him, if you perceive any opportunity that uh, would be good for me to go back, you tell me, and I'll go back. He said, well, I'm going to go back first, and then I'll tell you. A friend in our church went back, visited with him on a Friday night, this man told him the same thing. He had no interest in salvation. He was not going to believe on Jesus Christ as a Savior. And this man died the next day. Now, I say to you that this man 
probably along the way had heard the gospel according to the friend I had, the friend in our church that this man had. I would suspect the man heard the gospel no less than seven times with people who had visited him before the man in our church had visited him. There were some people in, in his own family visited him because they were believers, and they had talked to him, and they shared the gospel with him, and he turned them down the same way. not interested, no interest whatsoever. There's one thing about it. You and I can't save anybody, and you have to accept that. It may grieve our hearts that you have a man sitting in front of you who is lost as lost can be, and in one sense of the word knows he's going to die in his sin, and even knows that he's got a place he's going to call hell, that at least that's what the preachers say, and he accepts that to a point, uh, whether it's um, you know frivolous or, or whether it's very shallow, whatever it is, he says it. But the thing that just resonated in my mind and did so for a long time, he just said, I, I, I don't want to believe. I don't want to be saved. I could not comprehend that. Being on the other side and trusting Christ as a young person, young age, I could not comprehend somebody in his condition telling me, I don't want to be saved. But as far as we know from the context of uh, the people who spoke with him and his wife also who uh, when he died the next day, I uh, indicated to the friend in our church that uh, to his dying breath, he said he was not a Christian. He did not know Jesus Christ as his Savior. That's the only one I've been in the presence of someone of that nature, and I say this to you, it's a horrible thought. And it's a horrible experience to be able to share somebody the gospel and them tell you flatly, I'm not interested. I'm just not interested. So some people who would not will come to a point where they could not believe on the Lord Jesus. The lights will go out and the program is over and they are sealed for eternity. What's important about that is is not the fact that you and I go find these people because if that's the case then they're not going to respond to us either. But what is important that uh, we go into all of our world and do what we can to share the gospel with the people who are curious about our faith, who have already been interested in trusting Christ, and just nobody's come to them to talk to them how. Whatever the case is, I think the responsibility falls to us. When Christ was here, he did it himself. When he left, he turned to his disciples, and he said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then I will have my spirit that will indwell them and will teach them all the things they need to know. And that's the premise on which we move here at the New Life Baptist Church. One, do you know Christ for sure? Are you certain about it? Do you have any doubts? This is not something to be trivialized, and it's not something to have doubts about. Know for sure, for certain. Two, understand that you have people that you know, work around, live next to, or maybe actual family members who do not know Christ as Savior. Of all the things in the world that ought to occupy your attention and your time, it ought to be doing everything you can to get the gospel to these people. And the three is to understand that neither you nor them have a guarantee of any time span. We have no idea when we'll be called home. And we need to do what we're going to do. We need to do it now. So let me challenge you, let me um, beseech you, and let me downright beg of you. 
that this week, somehow, some way, you share the gospel with somebody. Find a Zacchaeus in a tree if need be. But do what you can to share the gospel this week. Because every week the devil can get you and me to put it off another week. There'll be another group of people with whom we may have come in touch with that could have been, should have been, at least given the gospel and shared it with them honestly. I hope you'll take it to heart. We'll pick up here next time we're together. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth that's set forth in this story, this conversion of Zacchaeus. And I thank you, Father, for the things that we can glean from this section, uh, knowing, Father, that it is a matter that uh, we can benefit from it, but in virtue that it's, it's got elements of things in it that these people and our people here at the church and myself need to know. I'm asking you then, therefore, to help us to take the heart, the issue that's at the heart of this whole text. And that is that there was a man there in this city, and our Lord came through that city and, in effect, went right to that man and, in effect, saved him. The evidence is quite obvious of what change came in his life by virtue of this meeting. And I pray, Father, that we take to heart that very same thing, that the people we know about that are not believers need a change of life. And if we could just get the gospel to them, you and your, you and your word, your spirit, working on them and drawing them to yourself, can do the saving work. I just simply pray you'll help us to do the faithful sharing work. Help us to bear the witness we need to, a clear presentation of the gospel, whether it be written, whether it be emailed, whether it be personal and direct, however it is, just help us to do it. Give us the boldness to speak the truth in love and have the same kind of compassion on people that our Lord had on the crowds. Bless now, I pray, our people and the truth that we've talked about. Help all of us to be obedient doers of the word. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you'll stand with us, please, we'll sing an invitation.